1: Hello, and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. I'm Stephanie Flanders. This week, we're talking about money, how to make it, and how to make sure it keeps its value. It's something we all have to think about, but if you're a central bank, it's your only job, and the stakes are a lot higher because the decisions a central bank takes can affect the cost of living, the life, of an entire country, maybe the whole world, if the central bank you're sitting in happens to be the US Federal Reserve. For the past 15, 20 years, The story of central banks and their job has been dramatic, but pretty easy to grasp. The rule was, whenever economies got into trouble, the central bank would slash interest rates to new lows and flood the economy with cheap cash. The economy got better, but never quite enough to bring rates back to where they were before the crisis. So money stayed cheap. This recovery, though, is feeling a bit different. At least in advanced economies like the US, demand is coming back faster than supply, and inflation's hitting rates we haven't seen in years. It's all driving fears that one of these central banks is about to monumentally screw up. Either keep the money flowing too long, lose control of prices, or raise interest rates too soon and choke the recovery. Now, the risks look rather different in the US and the UK right now, so I've asked Bloomberg economists on both sides of the Atlantic to come on the show to explain it all. Our chief EMEA economist, Jamie Rush, formerly at the UK Treasury, and David Wilcox, now our director of US economic research, but for many years in charge of all the forecasts and all the economic research produced by the Federal Reserve. You're going to hear them in a few minutes. But first, the story of a central bank that tried something new just under a year ago and changed the way money works in the economy almost overnight. It's called PIX, And here's Brazil economy reporter Maria Eloisa Capurro, to explain how it's taken the country by storm.
2: Fasten pigs or mega pigs wasn't something Brazilians used to say a year ago, but now you hear it everywhere. I mean, really everywhere. I pay my rent through pigs, I split the restaurant bill with friends via pigs, I even pay my utilities with pigs. And there's just millions like me.
0: I have PIX since it came out in
3: November 2020. I chose PIX because it was easy to make bank transfers.
2: That was Ricardo Duarte Silva, native from Guará, and who I ran into as he was having coffee in a restaurant in the Southeast region of Brasilia. Most of the payments he makes nowadays and most of the transfers he makes to his family use PIX, a new payment platform that's sweeping across Brazil.
0: <laughs>
3: I made a PIX of 3,000 reais as a loan. That was my last PIX transaction.
2: The mobile payment platform created by Brazil Central Bank less than a year ago has changed the financial landscape of Brazil. Now, more than 110 million users have transferred money through PIX, which lives within a bank's mobile phone app in just the same way Cell does for US-based banks. As if to underline the vast reach of a new payment system, while waiting at a stoplight in Brasilia, I noticed a woman going car to car begging for money. Her cardboard sign said she accepted PIX. PIX was created in an attempt to simplify banking transfers and make them cheaper while also boosting competition. But the success of PIX has highlighted another potential benefit of the system, an increasing financial inclusion by bringing people like the woman I saw at the spotlight into the country's banking system. And that's just huge for Brazil, where 30% of people don't have a bank account. You need to have a bank account to access PIX, but once you do, you can enter the platform just by registering your phone number, your text ID, or just your email. Here's Bank Chief Roberto Campos Neto speaking in an interview with the Council of the Americas in August.
4: I think PIX became uh, very popular, you know, gained a lot of space, a very popular project that, that the central bank did. The message from the very beginning was that it's not only a substitution effect, but also you increase the number of payments. Uh, You're gonna enable new business models, which should increase the volume uh, overall, should increase um, the ability of small companies or companies that sell things that are very small tickets to get into the market. People that are self-employed, we actually see people selling things on the street and accepting pics these days. So it's becoming again, a very popular thing. We never expected the reach, you know, we have 282 million keys, We have 7.4 million entities, companies using.
2: PIX is catching on so quickly, in part because it's just so easy to use, said Breno Lovo, a senior advisor at Brazil Central Bank and part of the team managing PIX.
3: It's always available, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The funds are instantly available uh, at the PE's account. So uh, 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 it's a very easy and simple and intuitive way of of transferring money using the, the smartphone.
2: The pandemic turned out to be fertile ground for the growth of PIX. People were cooped at home, avoiding contact, and businesses were closed. And suddenly, here comes PIX, making digital transfers as easy and fast as using cash. By September, about $89 billion have moved through the system. And just to give you an idea of what that means, PIX moves 50 times the amount of money ordinary checks do. Here's again, Brazil's central bank.
3: We expected that Pix uh, would be very used here in Brazil. Uh, but we thought that it would take a certain amount of time because people have their own habits of using means of payments. Here in Brazil, we use a lot of cash and we use a lot of credit cards and debit cards. So, Brazilians were not familiar to use their smartphones to start a payment. And PIX was a, a a really new thing that came here in Brazil. But it occupied this space really, really, really fast. Uh, PIX uh, is the instant it seems, that, that, that have the, the, the fastest adoption in, in, in its first year.
2: PIX has been especially game-changing for small business owners like Renata da Silveira Pires, who runs a small cat sitting business in the central Brazilian city of Aguas Claras? PIX, Pix lowered the cost for my
3: customers because the transfer fee that each bank charged me could be as high as 30% of my take. So, Pix brought me more financial control.
0: Para o meu
2: with Brazil's vaccination rate growing every day, the economy now is almost fully reopened and people are venturing out. Stopping by the bank now is much easier, and yet Pix is still growing. In July, it broke its own record of 40 million payments in just one day. Juliana Freitas works at a pasta shop which began using Pix just five months ago. We work with all credit and debit cards, but PIX was very practical and many clients wanted it. And it makes payments for deliveries easier. In 30 seconds she sees the payments in her account. Sometimes it takes less than that. It's super fast and we don't pay fees to banks. Credit cards can take as long as 30 days for us to see the money. And with debit cards, if the purchase is made on a weekend, we'll only see it the next Monday. But PIX is automatic. There's just one hitch. Brazil is a high crime country, and criminals have also begun to capitalize on the success of PIX. Express kidnappings are also back, and people are being snatched off the street at gunpoint and forced to pull out all their savings from the closest ATM machine. Just now, the bad guys only need to force them to make a PIX. Accounts are traceable in PIX, but criminals use fake ones or false names. The central bank responded rather quickly with new limits on transfers at night, and other safety measures have also been taken to address the possibility of hackers entering PIX database. And if the numbers tell us anything, is that for hundreds of thousands of resilience, the risk of using Pix is outweighed by the reward in cost and convenience. But Pix needs to grow to achieve financial inclusion. Here's Liliana Rojas Suarez, director of the Latin American Initiative at the Center for Global Development in Washington, D.C. Uh,
3: so uh, Pix is great for uh, lowering financial costs, increased uh, security, and improve the consumer experience. But that is true only for those that have a bank account, because that's a requirement of Pix. For those that do not have a bank account or do not have uh, a smartphone, they will not be able to access the, the uh, app. And so that would leave about 30% of the Brazilian population out of being able to use the uh, app.
2: Some of those changes seem to be already happening. Offline payments are in the works, along with programs that would allow people to withdraw money from stores using Pix. And Bank Chief Campos Neto says, we haven't seen the full scope of Pix yet. In fact, he estimates we've only seen 5% of its potential. And if that is true, Brazil could be on the brink of a digital revolution. For Bloomberg News, I'm Maria Luisa Capurro.
1: Well, no good deed goes unpunished. Our Brazil economist Adriana Dupita just informed me that PIX has been so successful the government's thinking of slapping a financial transactions tax on it to help fill the hole in the government's public finances. So I guess there are some things about Brazil that technology can't change. But now we move from a digital revolution for central banks to just a very difficult decision. As I mentioned at the start of the show... The rapid recovery we've seen in a lot of advanced economies this year has produced something we haven't seen in a long time. Inflation. Rising prices. The annual rate of inflation last month in the US hit 5.4%. That's the highest in more than a decade and only the second highest reading this century. Now, this was supposed to be a short-term blip, a temporary side effect of the extraordinary impact of COVID-19. But it's dragging on a bit and some pretty influential economists, including my old boss, the former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers, say the Federal Reserve and maybe other central banks are in danger of falling asleep at the wheel. Well, as mentioned at the start, I have our Director of U.S. Economic Research, David Wilcox, and Chief Emir Economist, Jamie Rush, here to discuss all this. I mean, David, you spent a long time uh, at the Fed. Uh, they say institutions are always at risk of fighting the last war. Is it, is it too focused on lack of demand, which has been such a problem off and on for the past 10 or 20 years, and now not focused enough on too much demand and actually too much inflation?
4: I don't think so, Stephanie. Uh, for sure, the Federal Reserve is facing challenging circumstances, with a pandemic-induced economic collapse, the likes of which we haven't seen in at least a century in the United States. But let's remind ourselves, uh, the dominant narrative in the US for the past two two decades has been inflation that ran too low, not too high. It was frustrating for the Federal Reserve uh, that they persistently undershot their 2% objective. Another key ingredient in the environment right now in the U.S. has been the astonishing downward move in interest rates around the globe, and that's left central banks, uh, including the Federal Reserve, with too little room to cut rates in order to fight recessions. To try to push back against those two developments, the Fed put in place a new framework one year ago, under which they pledged to be more tolerant of inflation running a little above the 2% objective. So while the situation remains very fluid and very uncertain, the bigger risk from the Fed's point of view, in my assessment, is that inflation sags below the 2% objective once again after the current set of snarl ups in the supply chains are resolved. I think they're right to stack the odds on inflation in favor of inflation running a little above 2%.
1: I guess there's two things here. There's that the forecasts that the Federal Reserve might have or policymakers might have are different. Um, they just don't think inflation's going to stick around as long as, as other forecasters do. And then there's something else, which is to say, we, we do think inflation maybe will stick around for a bit, but we think that um, we're more tolerant of that um, than we might have been in previous eras.
4: Yes, I think that's just right. Uh, monetary policy is risky business. It's not for uh, the timid of heart. Um, Certainly there are some prominent voices, and you mentioned Larry Summers being uh, perhaps the loudest of all, that are warning the Fed that they're on the brink of losing control of inflation. Uh, But the consensus view remains much more benign than that. My own views tend toward the more benign end of the range, I think uh, we're likely to have inflation that's a little above 2% a a year or two from now. But I don't anticipate that uh, the most likely outcome is that uh, we'll see inflation as a persistent problem for the Fed to deal with by then.
1: And I guess when you talk about Fed staff, until not very long ago, uh, a lot of those people used to used to work for you. It's all very well saying, well, we we want to build ourselves a bit of room for manoeuvre for the future. So if inflation goes higher, that's not such a big issue. Uh, But if you've lost credibility, if you seem to be acting too late, then I guess the risk is that you then have to do too much. I mean, how concerned will they be about that, do you think?
4: Well, let's distinguish two constituencies here. Uh, the, the job of the staff is to try to give their best professional judgment. They're acting like physicists, admittedly, in an, imp- in an imperfect world, but their job is to lay out their expectation and the range of uncertainties around uh, that expectation. Policymakers, you're absolutely right have to take into consideration a larger constellation of issues, including things like credibility and uh, reinforcing the meaning of the new framework that the Fed adopted just a year ago. Um, The Fed staff uh, is as good as they get, uh, and I think they are really free of any kind of uh, larger sort of pressures that that might be on uh, other elements. Uh, their job is to just simply give their best professional judgment. Uh, they don't need to take into account mm. issues of credibility or uh, other matters like that.
1: What would it take to change the Fed's mind? Do you think that w- w- how much inflation would you have to see for how long? I mean, when we see these numbers, you see very high house price inflation, you see rents taking off, you know, some things which are not, one would think, not entirely just related to these supply chain issues that we've had coming out of COVID.
4: Yeah, what will be required to change the the Fed's mind is really, I think, a break in inflationary psychology that we haven't seen really since uh, the early 1980s. Um, If it becomes the dominant narrative that, businesses are putting in place price increases because they know their competitors are, if they're granting wage increases because they know that their workers are being bid away by others who are offering higher salaries, if workers are demanding Larger pay increases because their cost of living is going up not only over the past year, but they expect it over the coming year. Those are the basic ingredients of a classic wage price spiral. And that's what will prompt the Fed to conclude that inflation expectations are no longer anchored as they have been for the past two decades. And that, in turn, will prompt the Fed uh, to slow the economy in order to contain inflation pressures.
1: I'm going to bring Jamie Rush in now, our EMEA uh, chief, uh, chief economist, because uh, if you, we tend to think of in terms of hawks and doves at central banks, and it greatly annoys the policymakers that sitting there because they think they have very interesting, nuanced views. But the hawks, broadly speaking, are the ones who want to raise interest rates, make money more expensive, and the doves are the ones who want to keep money very flowing very uh, loosely and, and freely. Um, if we have a flock of doves still encamped, at the Federal Reserve building in the US, uh, there are certainly a few hawks and one very prominent hawk uh, we've been hearing from, uh, from the Bank of England recently. Jamie, talk us through the situation there, because it feels like the forecasters and the central bank are facing the same uncertainties in the UK and some of the same inflation, but coming up with rather different conclusions.
5: Yeah, I think that's right. So if you go back a few, even just a few months, there seemed to be a consensus among global central banks uh, that they, they would just tread carefully if in fact there was any treading to be done at all. Uh, and so um, the bank wasn't expected to lift interest rates until 2023 in the UK. And they were going to tolerate any sort of uh, inflation uh, if as so long as it was going to be temporary. But now, wage pressure has picked up a bit, and not just in the places that have been affected uh, by COVID the most. Uh, Energy costs are up, which is obviously pushing headline inflation up a lot. And it seems that the the Bank of England's lost its nerve. Uh, The the governor is increasingly vocal about the risks of inflation. And that's prompted markets to bring forward the timing of expected rate hikes, uh, not to 2022, but to next month. So... um, it's been a really, really big shift in the bank's rhetoric and, and how markets are perceiving it. And in, indeed, they're expecting another 80 basis points or so of, of hikes next year as well.
1: So it's, just wor- it's worth emphasising just how big a change that was. So as you said at the start, only a few months ago, probably the beginning of the summer, we were expecting interest rates to stay basically at zero, just above zero in the UK uh for at least another year and a year and a bit so with no change until 2023 and now we're not only expecting maybe 3 quarters of a percentage point worth of cuts next year but even a rise this year so that interest rates in a year's time the official base rate could be 1 percentage point uh rather than more or less 0 now i can't think of a time when you've had such a dramatic change you said that the bank the bank governor had lost its lost his nerve that normally sounds like a bad <laughs> thing do you think he's making a mistake um well so, so i think there's two questions here are they making a
5: mistake about the policy that they're taking now so they they have they are accommodating market expectations of higher rates which is tightening it's hap- that's happening right now basically it's
1: feeding through to borrowing costs in the wider economy as we speak so, so people expecting rates to go up pushes the market rate. So when I go and get a mortgage or if I'm trying to borrow as a business, I'm already paying more because people are expecting interest rates exactly to go That's exactly right.
5: Up. So if you think about the five-year borrowing cost in markets, like the risk-free rate, that's gone up 50 basis points over the past few months. Eventually, that's going to feed through to your five-year mortgage if that's, if that's what you've chosen. Um, so these things are going to start affecting people even before interest rates have actually gone up. So I think that's an important point. So if there is a policy mistake happening, uh, it's being made now. It's it's not something that's about to happen. It's it's already happening. So so there's that. And I think, um, you know, is it a mistake? Well, we don't actually know. It it may prove to be the case that inflation does pick up uh, sustainably. And actually, this is going to look like quite a smart move in a year or so's time. Uh, Equally, you could see that unemployment goes up as the end of the furlough scheme in the UK uh, uh, happens and uh, and that pushes down on on um, on wage pressure and, and therefore inflation tips back downwards, um, in which case it would look like a, a mistake because it would needlessly delay the recovery. I think the bigger question, though, is whether there is a, a strategic error being made here. It's like, is it better to be... Like, if you're going to be wrong, is it is it better to be wrong by going too early or by going too late? And in my opinion... It is better to be to to raise interest rates too late because a little bit of extra inflation isn 't going to be too damaging to the bank 's credibility it 's not going to hurt people too much, especially if it's dri- it 's driven by wage increases um, compared with what we 've seen, which is a rapid repricing of of interest rates, the possibility that this has actually some um, some some nonlinear effects meaning that the economy could respond worse to a sudden increase in, in interest rates than um, than, a, than one that's been very carefully choreographed over the course of, say, six months. Um, and so, I think that is actually the bigger danger. You could have a position here where the bank is, has, has endorsed a lot of tightening and that it could it could affect uh, demand, it could affect the housing market, it could have uh, really quite a few unintended consequences. So, uh, the strategic decision, from, from, in my view, is, is probably not the right one.
1: It sounds like you're making a similar argument to what one would make in the U.S., I guess one argument is that the UK is in a worse position than the US and, particularly, is a bit more vulnerable to inflation taking off because it's also just had this kind of recently self-inflicted wound of Brexit. Is there a sense in which the Bank of England needs to be a bit more concerned about triggering an inflationary spiral than the US? We've also had quite a lot more inflation than the US. We haven't really had a deflation concern in the UK the way that you have in, say, the U- America or, or the Eurozone? We've been able to deliver quite a lot of inflation even through these last few years. I, I, I don't think
5: the bank need, needs to be especially concerned just because of the additional disruptions caused by Brexit. I mean, we always have this this, this backdrop of uh, supply chain disruption more broadly due to COVID. and It's very difficult to unpick the Brexit disruptions from the COVID disruptions. So I, I think, in in short, there isn't a, an obvious reason why you should adopt a different policy in Britain from the one that is being adopted in the in Europe and in the US, and in fact, by going quite by adopting a very different strategy, you do introduce some new risks in that you are going to see some potentially big movements in the exchange rate. For example, if the if the U, if the UK goes goes alone on monetary policy and raises mm-hmm. in, raises interest rates a year before the Fed, so there is there is I mean there is some safety in, in, in sticking with the herd.
1: And I guess I had a final question for both of you, which is before 2008, and certainly all the time I was learning economics in in, in high school and, and university, You know, we tended to think that recessions were going to be caused one way or another by central banks, because that was how most recessions had been. The immediate trigger for most recessions had been central banks jacking up interest rates in response to inflation that they'd allowed to get out of control. But that hasn't been true of the last two recessions, and we've kind of maybe forgotten about that dynamic. But are we back in a world where you would bet that the next recession, whenever it comes on either side of the Atlantic, is most likely to come from a screw up by the central banks? David?
4: I think the risk of that is much higher now than it uh, was previously. Um, What we know is that the macro environment is a risky place uh, to operate and recessions come from lots of different causes. The 2000 recession in the United States was caused by an asset bubble uh, collapse. The 2008 by the housing market uh, collapse. 2020, uh, the pandemic. Each one has its own narrative classically The textbooks that I grew up with emphasized that the uh, that the Federal Reserve let inflation get out of control, more or less because of a lack of focus. I don't think that's going to be the storyline that the textbook five and 10 years from now tells as its main narrative. But we just don't know. And so that's why I, for one, am going to stay tuned. (laughs)
1: <laughs> and Jamie, next time we have a recession, are you going to be looking first to the central bank?
5: Well, I, I agree with David. I think it's become much more risky. I mean, one, one, one obvious risk is just that the unprecedented support means it's going to be uncommonly difficult to unwind. Um, but I think that one interesting thing would be if central banks have to choose to have a recession in order to get inflation. I mean, we haven't had that for really a long time. Um, it's one thing causing one by mistake
1: and let, let, it, let it be said they have done yeah. that in the past they used to make quite yeah, a happy I think
5: that's it. actually a lot mm. that, it's fear of doing having to do that which is driving a lot of central bank behaviour now as we see it um, certainly for, perhaps for the Bank of England especially but yeah I, I think if they, if they had to choose to have a recession to get inflation back under control I mean that would be keeping me up at night
4: if I was a central banker.
1: Jamie Rush David Wilcox thank you very much
4: thanks so much good to be with you
1: Since we're talking about hawks and doves, I should mention that one of the great hawks in the European Central Banking scene has just announced he's standing down. Jens Weidmann, head of the German Bundesbank, for more than a decade. He became known as Dr No for voting against pretty much all that the European Central Bank did to support the Eurozone economy in the crisis years. With him going... The Hawks at the ECB have lost their strongman. But don't worry, something tells me there's plenty more just like him waiting in Frankfurt to take his place. Well, that's it for this episode of Stephanomics. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, if you like the programme, please rate it and follow at Economics on Twitter for more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics. This episode was produced by Magnus Hendrickson. And the story from Brazil was based on reporting by Shannon Sims and Maria Eloisa Capuro. Special thanks also to Daniel Cavallo, Isadora Colombi, Luana Reis, Jamie Rush and David Wilcox. Mike Sasso is executive producer of Stephanomics and the head of Bloomberg Podcast is Francesca Needy.